Welcome to Grace Capital Church Podcast, broadcasting from our Pembroke campus. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Um, You and Audra have been so gracious to us. Um, You guys know you have amazing pastors, right? How many of you know you serve an amazing God? (laughs) Glory. I thought so. Um, We're so excited to be here with you. Um, Would you believe this is my wife Faith's uh, very first time to New England? Yes. Yes. Of course, I told her you haven't lived until you've been to New England in the fall. Isn't that right? Come on. And there's, there's really no excuse for her because she has relatives that live right up the road in Lake Winnipesaukee. So. Um, so this is our first time to New England together as a couple. But for me, this is a homecoming um, because, you see, I grew up just the other side of the Hudson in Schenectady, New York. And every summer, as kids, we went vacationing in Maine. Come on. <laughs> Wells Beach, Old Orchard Beach. Well, we won't count that one. I got sick on the rides there. But... Um, <laughs> Um, you know, Algonquit, Perkins Cove, lobster fishing, come on, folks. And uh, I tell people everywhere I go, you know, that Maine is the vacation place. And they just laugh at me. And I say, no, no, really, it, it's vacation land. It's on their license plate, you know. And they, they, they just, they laugh. And, um, you know, they, they ask, you know, how can you swim in 50-degree water? Um, Well, you just get in and you get used to it like everything else, right? So um, in the fall, we would take these uh, wonderful trips throughout New England to all the historical sites. I'm a bit of a history buff, of course. And uh, we would go to Boston, of course, Boston, you know, New London, Mystic Seaport, Gloucester, Salem, Sturbridge, Plymouth, and a place called Portsmouth, New Hampshire to another place called Strawberry Bank. Love it. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, there's just something about being in New England in the fall that brings out the kid in me. Well, is anyone tired of all of the political fighting and bickering and negativity in the press and the fake news and all that stuff? Everybody tired of that? I know you especially, because isn't New Hampshire like campaign capital of the world? You must be tired of all this. Well, um, how many of you would like to hear some really good news this morning? Okay. Some really good news based on real facts and research and not some human agenda. Well, everybody take a deep breath. Because you are about to hear the best news you've heard all week. And for some of you, this may be the best news you've heard all year. Because I am about to tell you not what some world leader is doing or a political campaign, but I'm about to tell you what the Jesus inside us is doing. I'm about to tell you what the Holy Spirit is doing in the earth today and what God himself is doing in the earth today. Does that sound good, everybody? Are you ready? Okay. Experts estimate out of 7 billion people living on earth right now, between 2.2 and 3.2 billion of them are Christian. Of course, if you listen to the fake news long enough, they'll tell you, you know, Christianity is shrinking and Islam is taking over, but that's actually not true. 
Um, why do they tell us this? Because they want us to stop evangelizing. They want us to stop doing what Pastor Mark's been preaching on the last few weeks, right? They want us to crawl in a corner and hide somewhere and, and not come out. But we're not going to do that, are we? So don't listen to the news because the facts and the research do not back up their claims. In fact, just the opposite. Christianity is actually growing phenomenally today in what we call the majority world, the emerging world, or the global south. That's Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And that doesn't even include the untold millions of unregistered Christians there are in China today. Nobody really knows how many Christians there are in China today because they're unregistered, but we know the number is huge. I just read an article recently that said that Christ, the Christian population in China will soon become the largest in the world. So be encouraged because our world is becoming increasingly Christian. So much so that the current growth rate of Christianity worldwide is actually outpacing the general population growth rate. Even in some of the darkest corners of the world, astonishing numbers of people are coming to Christianity in North Africa, in the Middle East, for example. An unprecedented spiritual revival is taking place right now in which thousands of Muslims are reporting having visions and dreams and conversations with Jesus. Some are even going on television and talking about it in public. And thanks to terrorist groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, many Muslims are becoming disenchanted with their faith and converting to Christianity in droves. But again, you'll not hear about this in the news because many of these converts fear for their lives. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Jeff, this all sounds great, but if what you're saying is true, then why does it seem like from where I live and work that all the, he all the world's going to hell in a handbasket, right? Well, because in Europe and North America and westernized nations, Christianity is actually declining. And it's not just declining in certain regions or among certain demographics. The percentage of adults in North America um, is currently declining about one percentage point per year. Just in the last seven years, it went from 78 to 71 percent. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if things continue at their current rate, in about 70 years, there will be no Christians left in North America. But that's a very big if, because it fails to take into consideration what the Holy Spirit is doing in the earth today. And it fails to take into consideration the words of Jesus that ring through all eternity. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Can you say amen? amen? But this does bring up a very valid point and a very interesting question. Why in the world is Christianity growing at accelerated rates worldwide while simultaneously declining in the West? Well, many experts agree on the answer. Sociologist Max Weber says the fate of our times is characterized by rationalization and intellectualization. 
We no longer have a pervading sense of awe. Dr. Rodney Stark, author of the book Triumph of Faith, Why the World is More Religious Than Ever, says the industrialized world no longer experiences the world as enchanted. He says that Westerners no longer live in a world of spirits and demons and moral forces. In other words, we're no longer awed by a supernatural God. Instead, we're awed by science and technology. Philosopher Peter Kreese says the problem is modernism and now postmodernism. He says that the, the master heresy of our civilization is loss of belief in the supernatural. J.D. King, founder of Revival Network International, calls it abandonment of the miraculous. Evangelist Randy Clark says, I hear the same report coming from uh, evangelists who travel all over the world. He says they never see the same degree of healing and miracles here in America as they do in non-Western countries. He says we're a nation of skeptics and proud of it. Now remember... The same thing happened to Jesus in his ministry, right? The Bible says that there were certain towns where he could there do no mighty work save heal a, a few sick folk. Why? Because of their unbelief, right? So why is Christianity in the West not keeping up with the rest of the world? Because we hesitate when it comes to healing and deliverance and other works of power and because as a whole we remain closed to the reality of the supernatural. Listen, when the masses come to Christ in the, emergence, in the emerging world, just like the Apostle Paul whose preaching came in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, Christian leaders provoke their imaginations with something that they can actually see and hear and experience. While in the West, all we offer is talk and good morals and politics. Until we re-embrace the supernatural, Christianity in the West will never catch up to the rest of the world. God is still in the miracle business. Hello? But we in the West are missing out right now, which brings us to our next important question. How do we get the supernatural back? We begin with the Word of God because the Word of God and the Spirit of God always agree. Will you look at Psalm 145, verse 4 with me, please? Did everybody bring your Bibles, your devices? Great, great. Psalm 145, verse 4. David said, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Well, if this was true and important in biblical times, how much more in post-biblical times? The supernatural begins with us declaring God's mighty works to the next generation. Have you seen or experienced miracles in your own life or in your own lifetime? Then tell your kids and grandkids and tell this next generation about it. Amy Semple McPherson, founder of the Foursquare Church, reintroduced a supernatural God to her generation, and we must do the same today in our generation, and there's no better time to start than the present. 
What happened on the day of Pentecost? The supernatural happened, right? A rushing mighty wind blew, buildings shook, apparitional flames of fire appeared. And then these Galileans, who were known for being rough and outlandish, began speaking fluently and eloquently the praises of God in other languages. And then the greatest miracle of all happened. For the first time ever, men, women, and children by the thousands began converting to Christianity. Listen to me. The grand and noble purpose of Pentecost, of miracles, and of the supernatural is one thing and one thing only, conversion of the masses. Many people don't know this, but that's how Europe became Christian. You can read about it in my first book. This may be difficult to imagine today, but Europe was actually pagan and uncivilized at one time. But then came the Roman Empire, and wherever the Roman Empire went, Christianity went right along with it. Why? Because Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, a Roman territory, while the Roman Empire itself was still in its infancy. So as he grew up, as Christianity grew up, the Roman Empire grew up all at the same time, and wherever the Roman Empire expanded, Christianity grew right alongside it. And how were these barbarian European tribes converted? Through miracle-working missionary monks. A miracle here, a miracle there, and an entire nation came to Christ. And why is Europe becoming pagan and heathen again today? It's very simple. They stopped believing in a supernatural God. It may surprise some of you to know that New England was also converted to Christianity the same way Europe was, through mass conversion. That's right. You can write it, read about it in my second book. Many of the early European settlers in America were rough pioneers and rugged individualists and frontiersmen. And taming the wilderness in the New World was not an easy task. And not all Native Americans were friendly to the white man. Food was scarce. Living conditions were harsh. Many did not survive, and only the strongest did survive. That's why America won the Revolutionary War, because in the end, the British regulars were no match for those hardened, persistent pioneers. Come on. But everything changed. In America on October 30th, 1739, when the great orator, the divine dramatist, and the heavenly comet landed on America's shores. I'm speaking of George Whitfield. We Americans have always been awestruck by our celebrities, but how ironic that our very first celebrity was a preacher. Yes, from all over the countryside. People came by horse-drawn carriage, barge, ferry, or on foot to hear the famous preacher from England deliver his dramatic sermons. Benjamin Franklin, everybody heard of him? A lifelong friend of Whitfield's devoted no less than 45 issues of his gazette and used the power of the press to spread Whitfield's fame. Franklin even conducted a scientific experience one day when Whitfield was preaching in Philadelphia. He estimated Whitfield's voice could be heard by 30,000 people in the open air. That's without a microphone, of course. 
George Whitfield took America by storm. He traveled north and south, uniting the American colonies for the very first time under the banner of revival. Everywhere he went, miracles followed his preaching, and the power of God often moved spontaneously as he spoke. And then following his messages, further manifestations of the Holy Spirit occurred. Whitfield preached before record crowds in America, which often outnumbered the populations of the towns in which he spoke. Whitfield's powerful farewell sermon on Boston Common in 1740 drew an estimated 23,000 people, the largest crowd ever to have gathered in America to date, and larger than Boston's entire population at the time. Can you imagine? When Whitfield died in 1770, no less than four out of five American colonists had heard him preach at least once. This was America's first great awakening, and it happened by mass conversion. Between 1740 and 1742, listen to this, the great awakening swept 25 to 50,000 new members into New England churches alone. And between 1750 and 60, no less than 150 new churches were planted. And it all happened by miracles and mass conversion. One preacher in a place called Charlestown, New Hampshire, reported strange things happening there, much like Pentecostal scenes from Acts. And this happened right here, and it can happen here again. Mark my words. Yes. So why am I telling you all this? I want you to know Pentecost was not some singular one-time event. No, no, no. The day of Pentecost was only the beginning of the church age. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39 with me, please. Peter is preaching to a crowd here, Acts 2, 38 and 39. He's here on the day of Pentecost, and he says, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, look at verse 39. For the promise, what promise? The promise of the Holy Spirit is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off. How far off is afar off? <laughs> and as to as many as the Lord our God shall call. Whoa, that means Pentecost transcends generations, geography, and cultures. Now flip over to Acts 3, 19, please. Here, Peter and John just spoke to a layman who rose up, healed, after which thousands more were added to the church. See, mass conversions are nearly always preceded by miracles. And here again, Peter preaches to the crowd and he says, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Did you notice Peter said, plural, times of refreshing? See, Pentecost is repeatable. Today we call them revivals, awakenings, or renewals. Peter called them times of refreshing. The theological term for this is continualism or continuationism, which is the opposite of cessationism, okay? See, at some point, someone came up with this brilliant theory called cessationism, which acknowledges that gifts and 
miracles operated in the Old Testament and through Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, but then ceased sometime after that, though no one can seem to agree on a date as to when that actually happened. And the reason they can't agree on a date is because it never happened. Miracles never ceased. Why did they come up with this theory? It's very simple. If I'm a Christian and I've never seen a miracle and I've never experienced a miracle or I've never performed a miracle and yet miracles continue, then there must be something wrong with me, right? But if I've never seen or experienced or performed a miracle and miracles have ceased, well, then I'm off the hook, right? So people who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, Paul's words, not mine, are continually coming up with new excuses as to why they do not experience miracles. But now here's what I find amazing. Even the early Pentecostals, how many Pentecostals do we have in here? All right. Even the early Pentecostals, amen, brother, who believed that the gifts of the Spirit operated in apostolic times, which they called the early reign, and they believed that the gifts of the Spirit operated in their day, which they called the latter reign, they also believed that there was this 2,000-year period of relative drought in between, which is a cessationist theory. But here's the problem with all cessationist theories, besides being unscriptural and historically untrue and based on ignorance, is that they fail to take into consideration 2,000 years of Jesus building his church. I mean, how do you think the church grew from 120 in the upper room to 2.2 to 3.2 billion, right? But today, thank God, the information age has changed everything, and modern scholars now realize that the Holy Spirit and his gifts never actually ceased. And today, there's this new swell of scholarship rising up among Catholics and Protestants and Evangelicals and Pentecostals and Charismatics alike who readily acknowledge and accept the Holy Spirit's work, not only today, but all through history. And this is where I came in. See, I was a Christian education directory, director for a large church in Florida for seven years, which means I put together curriculum for everybody from the nursery all the way to the senior adults. And yet I knew nothing about this. I couldn't believe that there were all these scholars out there who knew all about this, studied it, and wrote books to each other about it, while the rest of us remained ignorant. And so I thought somebody needs to tell the church. And that's when I started writing books. I mean, how can we possibly, as Pastor Mark alluded to, how can we understand what the Holy Spirit is doing today, much less prepare for what he's getting ready to do if we don't know what he's been doing the last 2,000 years? And young people today especially need to know this so that they can have a compelling and sustainable supernatural Christian worldview so when they grow up and leave home and are confronted with other worldviews, they can hands down reject them because they know their spiritual ancestry in Christ, right? 
And we parents and grandparents have an obligation to share these wonderful stories with them. But listen to me, parents. Just because your kids go to, go to church with you every Sunday is no guarantee they're going to follow Jesus when they get older because God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. Think about it. That means every person in every generation must experience God for themselves. Jesus said in John 14, 11, If you don't believe me that I and the Father are one, believe me for the very work's sake, the miracles. See, for me, it's too late. You can't talk me out of salvation. You can't talk me out of the Holy Spirit's power because you're about 40 years too late. I will follow Jesus and I will believe in his power until the day I die because I've experienced it. I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. I felt his presence. I have seen the mighty works of God. I've heard him speak to me time and time again. You can't shake it out of me. Parents, the second thing you need to do with your kids, besides declaring God's mighty works, is to warn them about the other worldviews that are out there. Humanism, secularism, liberalism, modernism, postmodernism, so that when they grow up and leave home, they won't fall for some of these anti-Christ, anti-Christian worldviews. And our books do all of the above. They not only teach the origins of Christianity, but they teach the origins of other major worldviews and how they all pale in comparison with the ancient supernatural Christian worldview. Listen to me, parents. I want your kids to follow you to heaven, okay? It's a whole lot easier to teach and declare God's mighty works and to warn your children about other worldviews while they're still at home living with you than to hope and pray every day that they come back to Christ after they're all grown up and gone, okay? Now, I told you I was going to share some good news with you, right? It doesn't take a scholar or an expert to know that these are dark times for the church in America. After the fall of Rome, Europe went through a similar period. You may have heard of it before. It's called the Dark Ages. But they weren't really dark, uh, if you were a Christian, that is. That's why I titled the last chapter of my first book, The Not-So-Dark Ages, because the people who actually lived in the Middle Ages didn't think of them as dark, just the opposite. And they thought it was a great time to be alive and to be a Christian. And because, you know, there were great technological advances like the printing press. It was a great time to, for intellectual growth and building great cathedrals and experiencing great spiritual revivals. Modern scholars used to call these the Dark Ages because relatively little was known about them. Okay? But again, modern archaeology and the information age has changed all that, and now scholars no longer use the term Dark Ages because it's simply not true. Yet the term remains in popular and secular usage because if you're not a Christian, then yes, the Christian Middle Ages would seem a little dark to you. But if you look beyond um, today, and some of us today actually think these are dark times, right? And, um, and if you live as a Christian in Europe or North America, you might think that. But if you look beyond North America and Europe, you will find that there is this global renewal taking place and that these are actually great days for the church as Christianity continues to grow exponentially throughout the world. Listen, with all the junk the mainstream media bombards us with every day, I cannot overemphasize 
the importance of maintaining a global renewal perspective so that you don't become disillusioned. People who have a supernatural Christian worldview in the West, we often call ourselves Pentecostals or Charismatics, right? But in the rest of the world, they just think of themselves as Christians because that's all they know. They think it's normal to speak in tongues and experiencing miracles. Um, by the year 2011, Pentecostal Charismatic Christians numbered 584 million worldwide and were growing at a rate of 19 million or uh, per year or 54,000 per day. That means one in 12 people alive today is a Pentecostal Charismatic Christian. One in four Christians today are Pentecostal Charismatic. Though modern Pentecostalism is, has only been around for about 100 years, it's already the largest family of Protestants in the world and second largest family in Christianity, second only to the Catholic Church. Peter Wagner said, in all of human history, no other non-political, non-militaristic uh, voluntary human movement has grown as rapidly. Most of the world's population are Pentecostals. Projections, uh, I'm sorry, most of the world's largest congregations. Projections for 2025 is that there will be close to a billion Christians, uh, Pentecostal charismatic Christians worldwide. And overall... Christianity is expected to exceed 2.6 billion, be, uh, by far making it the largest faith. No wonder the other religions of the world are getting nervous because Jesus is building his church. What we are witnessing today is a dramatic shift in Christianity from the northern hemisphere of Europe and North America to the southern hemisphere of Africa, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. If you don't believe me, just look at the recent stunning election of Pope Francis. After 2,000 years of successive European bishops, we now have our first pope from the Southern Hemisphere, the first American, first Latin American, first Jesuit, first evangelical, and first charismatic pope. So the Southern Hemisphere is no longer the third world, but the majority world. Africa is no longer the dark continent, but the bright continent where Christianity is concerned. And Latin America is no longer the forgotten continent, but the foremost continent where Christianity is concerned. And what the Holy Spirit is doing in Asia today, um, due to the massive spread of uh, the charismatic movement, um, is just phenomenal in nations like China and Korea and India and the Philippines and Indonesia. An estimated 80% of all Christian converts in Asia are Pentecostal charismatics. And China, which considers itself the ends of the earth, has begun what they call the Back to Jerusalem movement, in which they intend to fulfill the Great Commission in reverse beginning at the ends of the earth, encircling the globe, and arriving back in Jerusalem in the end. China alone plans to send 100,000 missionaries to the 51 unreached people groups between China and Jerusalem, and they've already planted some 7,000 churches. South Korea and the Philippines have done uh, equally as many missionaries, sending them out, concentrating on the Muslim nations. Do you know the largest building in Southeast Asia today? is in Indonesia, the largest Muslim populated nation on earth. And guess what? 
It's Bethany Church of God, a 200,000-member Pentecostal church that plants hundreds of satellite churches annually worldwide. Africa, after centuries of Catholic, Protestant, and later Pentecostal missionaries poured into that continent, now has 42 independent nations. And um, South African evangelist Reinhard Bonnke has preached to some uh, 120 million Africans and led some 55 million to salvation in Christ between 2000 and 2009 alone, often with complete governmental cooperation. Today, more than a dozen African nations are between 90 and 100% Christian. And I've already told you about the unprecedented spiritual revival taking place in North Africa and the Middle East. Latin American Pentecostalism is currently in a struggle with Catholicism for the heart and soul of Latin America. This is a populist grassroots movement. It's presently growing three times faster than Catholicism and three times faster than the general population. It's not a religion of the classes, but of the masses. And they love to demonstrate Jesus Christ and his power over demonic forces with miraculous signs and healings and deliverances and salvation and tongues and ecstatic worship. Today, the number of Pentecostal charismatics in Latin American countries is astounding. 15% of Guatemala, Pentecostal charismatic. 20% of Argentina, where Pope Francis is from, spirit-filled. 30% of Chile today, Pentecostal, charismatic. 40% of Brazil, Latin America's largest nation, is Pentecostal, charismatic. I'm telling you, these are great times for the church. But what about North America and Europe? What about North America and Europe? What we are witnessing today is a reverse flow of missionaries coming out of Africa and Asia and Latin America and into Europe and North America. The Apostle Paul once spoke about the propriety of children repaying the elderly parents who once took good care of them, and today we are witnessing that on a global scale. Who could have imagined years ago that the converts of European and American missionaries would one day return the favor by sending missionaries of their own to save a secular West from moral ruin. Yesterday's, listen to this, yesterday's great missionary forces have become today's great missionary fields, and yesterday's great missionary fields have become today's great missionary forces. The largest evangelical church in Europe today is 25,000-member Embassy of God Church in Kiev, Ukraine, with more than 700 affiliated churches in more than 45 countries. The pastor is not a European, but a Pentecostal from Nigeria named Sunday at Elijah. Same thing in the UK. The uh, four of the ten largest uh, churches in that nation Um, including London's 10,000-member Kingsway International Christian Center, is pastored by Matthew Ashimalawa, a Muslim convert in Nigerian Pentecostal. North America, once hailed as the largest sender nation of missionaries in the world, is now the largest mission field in the Western Hemisphere and fifth largest in the world with 120 million unsaved people 
But redeemed Christian Church of God, a global Nigerian Pentecostal denomination with missionary outposts in over 147 countries, now has its North American headquarters in Dallas, Texas, with churches in virtually every major U.S. city. And Zenzo Matoga, a missionary from Malawi, Africa, is founder of United Night of Worship, an annual cross-cultural gathering of thousands of believers in Boston's open square where George Whitfield once preached to thousands in America's first great awakening and where many believe America's next revival will begin. South African missionaries are doing the same thing here in America. And it's not just missionaries. You know all this talk about immigration right now? Listen to this. There are currently 43 foreign-born residents living in the U.S. right now. And guess what? 40, I'm sorry, 74% of them are Christians. I'm telling you, God is sending them. America is hurting. Europe is in trouble, but help is on the way. But we can't rely totally on missionaries. We have to wake up. And we have to start working with these missionaries that God is sending our way instead of working independently like we always have. Listen, God has great plans for America. Jonathan Edwards, the man in whose church America's first great awakening began, believed that America was designed by the Lord to advance the cause of Christ in the world. He also thought it not at all improbable that America was reserved in the mind of Jehovah to be the grand theater on which the divine Redeemer would accomplish glorious things. Listen, the first and second great awakening both began in America and spread throughout the world. The Pentecostal and charismatic movements, both of the 20th century, began in America and spread throughout the world. Why would we expect the next great move of God to be any different? And it can happen, and it will happen, right here in New Hampshire. Now, what will the next great move of God look like? I'm sorry, I'm out of time. Um, But you can read about it in our third book. (laughs) Bless you guys. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to speak to this church here, this wonderful church here in this great state of New Hampshire. A lot of things begin in New Hampshire. A lot of great things in America begin in New Hampshire. And I believe the greatest move of God is yet to come, is now beginning And we are on the cusp right now. And Father, I believe that you will use this church, you will use this pastor, you will use this congregation to be a part of that. And that when your sovereign move comes, they will be ready and they will move with you. And Father, we believe this revival is going to begin here in New England, just as it did before, just as the second great awakening began here in New England. Father, we believe that your kingdom is coming on this earth very soon. And we believe we need to get ready. 
And we believe you are getting each person here that I'm speaking to right now, I believe you are getting every one of them ready for your coming, getting them ready for the next revival, getting them ready for the next great awakening, which promises to be beyond anything that the world has ever seen. And it will truly spread to the rest of the world and will be the beginning of a great missionary thrust throughout the world. It'll be a coming together of evangelicals and Pentecostals and Charismatics and Catholics and Protestants. It'll be what you promised Jesus and what you prayed for Jesus, that they would all be one. Thank you. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you for making it happen. We so appreciate you, Jesus. We so appreciate you. And I pray, Father, for every person here that they would catch the vision and run with it. In Jesus' name. And everybody agreed, said? Amen. 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 Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Thank you for listening to the Grace Capital Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about this podcast and the mission that we have in New England, or if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to support this ministry financially, please visit us online at gccnh.com 